0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider.
2: This week on Meetin 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentisana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School.
1: This idea of family style and made from scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city.
2: We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery.
1: Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history.
2: And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm.
3: We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water.
2: Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys. It's March 26, 2019. It's the beginning of spring. And we've got a very spring-like theme today. We're going to be talking about cider, New York State cider, uh, with a very interesting group of uh, experts, cider makers, and our good friend Jen Smith from the New York uh, Cider Association. Jen, how are you?
5: I'm well, thank
4: you. It's always a pleasure having you on the show because um, you've grown so much... uh, with the industry and and, and with New York Cider. Just give us a couple updates on on what's going on and some of the things that we'll be talking about on the show today.
5: Sure. Um, We have a couple of projects that are coming to fruition this year. We'll talk, I think, a little more in depth later in the show about the New York Cider brand identity that we've developed. So we have a logo that uh, cider makers using 100% New York fruit can use on their labels, and our tagline is the State of Cider. Um, we additionally have, uh, some data validation around the dryness scale that we've been developing over the past couple of years. So we're ready to see that go into market. And now we're beginning to think about how to certify the name so that we can guarantee that usage reflects, uh, the integrity and the kind of scientific rigor that, the scale itself embodies. So that will be a great way for consumers to get to know whether their ciders are sweet or dry.
4: That's great. We're going to be focusing on New York State cider in the show today. And um, Tyler uh, from Kings, it's Kings Highway Cider, right? Yes. So give, give, give us your full name, sir.
6: Uh, I'm Tyler Graham with Kings Highway. I'm the owner. Um, we started packaging last spring and we're doing really well in the Hudson Valley, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts. We're launching in Pennsylvania next week. And, um, you know, we're doing really well here.
4: It's great. I mean, we were at a Cider Week event together, and you proposed the show. Um, you have a couple ideas that we were going to talk about today. Um, I know, are you on the board of the New York State Cider Association?
6: I'm on the marketing committee, and... Um Yeah, we were just chatting and thought it would be a good idea to kind of talk about the state of New York Cider, considering that we now have this new logo that's promoting 100% uh, New York Cider.
4: Yeah. And what do you think? I mean, they've had some questions about, you know, what does it mean to be a New York Cider? Um, That's a good starting point. You know, anybody want to join in on that? Is it about apples? Is is
6: it about culture? Well, I think a lot of the, um, you know, what we were talking about on the marketing committee is, you know, any... State could have a cider that's 100, um, percent you know, Michigan apples or whatever, and so you know, part of what um, we were talking about is what makes uh, a New York cider, and I think it has a lot to do with the culture of New York. I mean, I think that the cider market in New York is really starting to mature, and I think it's a little bit behind maybe some other markets like on the West Coast. Uh, if you go upstate. You know, people will tell you, oh, ciders for fall. If you come into the city, you know, in March, everyone's drinking rose ciders. So I think um, I would compare it a little bit to the beer market, where uh, I think seven years ago, the New York beer market was, you know, very immature. But now, if you look at the packaging, New York beer is the most beautiful packaged beer in the country. Yeah, it's true.
4: And Gideon, uh, so give us, introduce yourself, because you're one of my favorite cider guys.
7: Hey, so my name is Gideon Call. I started Original Sin quite a long time ago, back in 1996. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I've seen the cider industry in New York evolve quite considerably over the years.
4: I mean we, when we first met I was criticizing your packaging cuz you were appealing to a nightlife but you, yeah. you, back then I mean how did you sell cider you know t- over 20 years ago and we well, even
7: know what it was You know actually even the point where you're criticizing me was probably the second or third phase in the company cuz that you know for the first 12 years there wasn't any point of sale or really image to speak of but at some point that image did take hold especially in the lower east side News village at a time when you really needed that to get bars to get excited about cider, and get sell-through. So it's a very different time than it is now as in terms of expertise in the cider category and excitement about the category in general. And we're
4: going to talk a lot more about, about new things that you're doing, but also a couple more guests in the room.
8: Uh, I'm Dan Pucci. Um, I have a company called Wawa Hospitality. I wear a lot of different cider hats in the industry. Um, we know you. You were the Palmier at Wasale Yeah, back in the day, it was Palmier Wasale um, first cider L-
4: bar in New York, 2015. That brought so many cider people into this this studio. We yeah, for quite sure. A few
8: cider shows back then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and since then, I do many many other things. <laughs> Great And I have another special guest from Heritage Radio Network.
2: Hey, I'm Jordan Berry. I'm a producer here at HRN, and I do cider research on the language we use to talk about what we're drinking.
4: That's great. So let's go back to this. So Jen, I know um, some things that you've been talking about and studying um, besides label and marketing. But you've talked about a dryness scale, yeah. for a while. G- give me a little backstory in that, and let's let's talk about w- what that means for you guys as New York producers and and cider experts.
5: I will. Can I be a pain in and jump back for one second first sure. and talk a little bit more about. The logo and the notion of what New York cider is. And I just want to point out that it's fairly unique in the United States for a farm cidery license class to exist. And what a farm cidery here in New York State means is that it's a cidery that uses 100% local ag. So when we're talking about New York cider, what we mean is that it's fruit that's all grown locally. Now, I'm not, you know, we can debate the relative merits of New York apples versus Massachusetts apples or et cetera. But the point here is that there is not necessarily a guarantee that cider that is from state X is actually made from apples grown in state X, the way that there is that guarantee here in New York.
7: If I can uh, make a comment on that, that uh, one uh, um, unique element of New York cider is that we have the most diverse selection of apples in the country. And on top of that, we do also have a very diverse variety of ciders being made which again the Finger Lakes is certainly very different than you get in other portions so
2: great
6: um yeah I think um well I'm gonna pour a cider right here called Little Scrumpy and this just kind of shows you that um just so apples King, just King's Highway King's Highway Little, Little scrumpy. scrumpy and this is just made from apples that have just been around for a hundred years on the side of the road and um it's got like A little bit of a funk to it, but not not any kind of bacterial or yeast funk. It's just the um, tannins on the apples. And these apples um, are all over the place where we are up in eastern Dutchess County. But I think one of the big things that this idea of doing 100% New York apples is going to help the industry with is getting better apples into the ground. We're talking about, you know, when we buy these apples um, from growers right now, they'll have... Excess cider apples, and they don't have anything to do with them. At, you know, at the last minute in the season, and then we can get them for cheap. But what we want is we want to pay more for them. We want to pay twice the price of them, and know that we're going to have them in August, September, and you know, really grow the industry.
8: Yeah, I think it's really important, especially because we do have the most amount of cideries of any other state in the country. We are the leading, and I think it's sense that we have a really diversity of producers here as well. Like you don't was saying, we do have the Finger Lakes, which makes a very unique style of cider versus the Hudson Valley and uh, we have ciders in 750s and in cans and in kind of all different formats on draft and serving in wine glass and pint glasses. And it's kind of amazing the diversity we have within the state. That's a good start, right, John? And, and, and I'm point out in the varieties we're using for those ciders as well. We're using culinary varieties. We're using bittersweet varieties. We're using heirloom varieties. And it's all kind of maxed together. And New York State's really driving a lot of the rest of the country as well. Uh, a lot of our orchards out in western New York are, are making cider or growing apples and making cider for cider makers around the country. So it's pretty impressive.
5: Yeah. And then to talk about the dryness skill, you asked me about that. Sure. Okay. Um, so there is a demonstration. The reason
4: I, I say that is because we, we want to talk about a, a label. We want to talk about mm. growing better apples and New York. People knowing that New York has great apples that make great cider, but an important for me an important direction for this industry is is dryness, you know. What is dry and how do people know? Sure.
5: Yeah. I mean, sadly we tend to demonize and effeminize sweetness, which is not in and of itself inherently bad. I think that there are sweet ciders that I would take 9 times out of 10 over a dry cider because they're balanced, but you know, it's it's the imbalanced ciders that that give sweet cider a bad rep. But that aside, you know, Consumers don't understand what dryness is. They do understand what they like to drink, but they can't quite nece- you know, connect between what the, that, that dryness or sweetness is and, and what they're enjoying. And so we've developed this scale that will standardize based on residual sugar and total acidity, and then if there are a substantial amount of tannins present, also adjusting for tannins, what the flavor experience is going to be, for them, as they you know are drink, enjoying it in the glass, and and so building upon that and creating a custom framework, uh, a, a constant framework for it, will be able to help acclimatize so what, drinkers to it, what they want to drink. a number
4: drink. scale, like a one to yeah, ten?
5: it's I mean, it's a you know zero to four uh, from dry to sweet. And your particular cider falls where it falls in between, and it's dry, semi-dry, semi-sweet, sweet are the hash marks, and um, you know it. We're actually it, we. The New York Cider Association considers our colleagues in in the Northeast to really be kin. Like, we have a lot of the same concerns. We have a lot of the same objectives. We have a lot of the same opportunities. Interestingly, the first person to have the official dryness scale and market is uh, Eden Ciders from Vermont. Eleanor just texted me a picture this morning. The cans just came off the line, and they've got the scale on there. So, excited about that.
4: And do you think that for you guys as cider makers and experts, I mean, does that help you in your marketing? To, to know that there's a scale that people can relate to? And would you make ciders f- for a number? Like, I
6: want to make it a dryness three. I want to make a dryness seven. Well, so at King's Highway, we do everything with—we ferment all the sugar out. So it's always uh, zero grams residual sugar. And like Jen was mentioning, I mean, it's, it's actually very— con- confusing for the consumer right now, because the way I like to explain is if you take a Coca-Cola and just keep adding acid to it, eventually you can't taste the sugar anymore. And you wouldn't know that there's 32 grams of sugar. So a lot of uh, dry markets out on the market right now, um, they'll say dry, and then there's, you know, 10, 12 grams of sugar. So I think this will really kind of help start to rein this in so that consumers can kind of start to understand what's going on.
8: Well, I think a big problem in the entire industry today across the country is kind of a failure of expectations among um, the cider consumer, in which you, you don't necessarily understand um, what this cider should taste like. I see that it says these things on it, but what does it actually mean? There are certain, a lot of language like Jordan's been working on the last few years in terms of like understanding when the language actually has, and actually maybe has some value to it or no value to it at all, and um, people understanding what maybe what varieties will taste like and things like that. But I think having this dryness is the first conversation because at would say at least a lot of the first conversation we had people were about, is, this, is the cider dry? And I'm like, is it dry? And now ready for the next conversation. But it, once, if we can get past that first point of entry, then it will hopefully open up more conversations. Jordan?
2: Yeah, I agree. My data set looks at 500 labels from around the country. And it's basically a frequency list of all the words that producers are using to communicate directly with the drinkers on the labels. And the number one word by a landslide is no surprise to anyone here. It's dry. And that's separating out all the other uses, the semi-dry and uh, medium dry. It's just dry on its own. And the variety of ciders that that word shows up on is way bigger than you would expect it to be um, as a first-time cider drinker. Well, this
4: is very interesting because let's let's say champagne, that everyone knows what champagne is. If I ask you what's brute, sec, and demi-sec, do you know the difference? Does anyone?
6: Yes, you do. Tell yeah. us, yeah. Tyler. Yeah, uh, I mean, brutes dry. That's why you know our sort of flagship right now is your is twelve York brood. grams per liter of sugar, <laughs> zero, zero
8: grams sugar. Sugar to twelve. You got the per numbers down. And what's sec and 12. what's demi sec? Uh, I think sec is twelve to twenty three. Demi is like twenty three to thirty eight or
5: forty two, something like that. I used to remember. So you so cha- cha- got a level cham- one master someone. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> to so champagne
4: cham- I'm going champagne industry. <laughs> has down some kind of a dryness scale. Um, How is the cider scale going to compare with with that or learn from it?
5: Interestingly, ours evolved from the international Riesling scale, right? So that's taking the mystification around whether Riesling is sweet or dry uh, and clarifying it for the consumer. It was introduced in... um, the late '90s, I believe. Actually, it was an international uh, committee, but but based in the Finger Lakes, uh, and ours is built from it in the sense that they use residual sugar and total acidity and they adjust for pH and we don't adjust for pH but we do adjust for total tannin content where it's present it doesn't necessarily have to be so they saw, and by they I mean the sort of global Riesling industry they saw um, unparalleled growth in their category in the years following the introduction of the scale so there's sort of a universal regard for it as an effective consumer communication tool. Now, are, there are people who might quibble with how it's used and they they very much took a backseat around regulating it. So, you'll see it on a, you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and does it belong there and what does it mean at that point? But for a core group of of Rieslings, it really helped consumers connect with what do I like and is this Particular wine, one that I'll like. So we're we're hoping to replicate that. Yeah. You know, for me, one, one
4: thing is you know having been a, a retail buyer and whatever, sold me a guy forever. I felt like I had to spend so much time tasting different producers' products just to figure out what their dryness scale was in anything, any category: wine, beer, cider.
8: Yeah, I, I, I think what John am saying, it very much informs the expectations for, for reasoning and really help them like evolve and grow and people are more comfortable in buying those products. I think with cider, we're going to have the same results with this. There are the United States dry, dryness scale, and people are going to be more willing to, uh, to give cider a chance once they are reassured that it is actually a dry cider.
6: <laughs> Great. And I think also just as a consumer, just to say, you know, if I'm drinking something that's 100% dry at lunch, it's got, you know, the ABV is six percent. I can have a cheeseburger, go back to work. Uh, you know, I don't have this like slump. But if it's a, if it's something that's sweeter, maybe that's something that I would have at the end of a meal at night to help me go to sleep. So I, you know, I do, I do think it's very important. I want
4: to jump to a different different thing. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, you know, we're talking about things like how cider's presented, you know, large format bottles like wine versus cans. But let's talk about something else. Let's talk about cider versus beer or cider versus wine. Because I feel like there's a finite market for beer. Beer is a huge market. You know, The beer companies take out Super Bowl ads. But I don't really think that that market's growing. I feel like I've seen cider, you know, a typical like mainstream Upper West Side restaurant now with six six drafts. Now it's becoming more standard to have one line of cider. So you're seeing growth in cider. So, you know, who wants to sum up where, where is cider? Is, is it is it going after beer drinkers?
6: Is it going after wine drinkers? Well, yeah. I'll, I, oh. I'll just say one thing that I, you know, I tell drinkers who aren't maybe necessarily mm-hmm. familiar with nicer ciders is... Very well executed sour beers that are blended from barrels, very well executed wines that are blended from barrels, and very well executed ciders that are blended from barrels all have a very similar um, thing going on.
7: You know, I think also the cider industry is very bifurcated in terms of one, there are certain drinkers that want... (laughs) Bifurcated? Is that a process (laughs) in cider making? (laughs) I think think there's certain Bifurcation patented by... But I think there's certain people that want dry ciders as opposed to sweet ciders. Is also, when you go into other markets, um, the level of sophistication per market is very different from market to market. And I think that's one of the major confusions when they start using words like dryness. The dryness in certain parts of this country means something different than it might be in New York, where people are obviously much more sophisticated. So, and then you're, that, that, once again, even happens even more so than you're talking about, you know, 12-ounce cans as opposed to wine bottles. We're all in the same room, but in many ways, it's two separate types of ciders that are being produced, or, or two separate markets that are being that are consuming the product. Or, or the over there is overlap, but, uh, but not, uh, not to a great extent.
4: Well, I feel like when I'm in a, a damn poochie tasting, I only get
8: uh, cider in fancy wine bottles. <laughs> not always true. We have cans. I usually sell canned ciders as well, but um, I, I I think even I think even less, I, I think there is definitely that kind of like of of the market, like you know I was saying. But also, there is also, I think, a spectrum as well that exists. And there's like a, and like the products that exist that are made by m- macro brands from concentrate are different from the brands that are the more regional brands that are made from fresh, fresh apples versus the ones that are made from apples they purchase from somebody else versus the people who are growing estate grown apples and things like that. And there's kind of a long spectrum of different ciders that exist within the marketplace. And which actually, I think,
7: I'm, I'm sorry, on that note, um, you know, s- unfortunately, in this country, 75% of ciders in this in this country are still made out of concentrate and also the level of knowledge in this country is still so limited that if you go into bars you'll be shocked at the lack of knowledge when it comes to uh cider
4: that's great we're gonna take a short break guys we'll be back in one minute on beer sessions radio all right
1: This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shacksbury, producer of the first American-made Pet Nat Cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit shaksbury.com or follow them on Instagram at shaksbury. You guys
4: can ask questions if you Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. It's our 10th anniversary. There's a, every month there's some new Hall of Fame announcements, and a lot of great things going on, heritageradionetwork.org. We also forgot we have a calling guest out there, a very special uh, wine and cider shop owner up in the Fishkill, New York, yep. uh, Paige from uh, Boutique Wines. Hello, Paige, can you hear me?
3: I can hear you. How are you guys doing?
4: Great. Have you been listening in to the show? Absolutely. Great. So just, just give us a quick, I mean, uh, Tyler thought it was very important that we had you call in, you know, you're, you're of a retail operation. Just tell us what, you know, the ciders that you're selling and, and your take on the, the New York cider
3: industry. Yeah, I mean, we have um, almost 150 different SKUs in the store at this point, um, including 13 on tap. We're one of two retailers in New York State that has taps of cider. So we carry 13 on tap, um, mostly from New York, although we do have a few uh, Vermont and sometimes some European ciders as well. Um, But our uh, store is centered around New York and more New York cider makers than others. Great, so.
4: and I, t- Tyler. Why did you invite Paige to come on? Because I, I know that uh, you helped pick all the guests for the show today.
6: Well, I I think she has an interesting perspective. I think in New York, um, we do have this thing going on a little bit where is good cider just in 750 bottles, or can it be in cans? Or um, you know, when I when I've been to Portland, Oregon, or California, I just feel like people don't. Um, nitpick as much. They're just like I like cider. Okay, there's the cider. And um so I think Paige has a unique perspective because she's kind of in Fishkill there, she's kind of like the gateway to the Hudson Valley. A lot of people stop in there because she has such a large selection. And so I thought a lot of times we don't hear that voice from the retailer in these conversations, so I thought she'd be a great person to add.
4: Great. So let's all ask Paige questions. <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh Paige,
8: what are kind of the consumer expectations when they show up to your store and they kind of wanted to buy a cider what makes them choose a 750 versus a a single serve single serving can or format
3: well i mean so it's interesting i mean since we have wines spirits and ciders in here um i would say you know only about a third of my customers come in specifically for ciders i have other customers that come in for other things. So one of the first things I do when somebody comes in for wine is I kind of introduce them to ciders um, and I bring them over to our tap system and kind of walk them through some of the taps. And a lot of times a wine drinker will tell me, well, I don't like cider because cider's sweet. And then I have to kind of give them a little bit of an education and find out what sort of wines they drink. And then based on that portfolio of what they're drinking in a wine, I can then start to choose ciders off my taps for them to taste and oftentimes you know depending on what I pick they'll tell me oh this cider tastes a lot like a wine and I'm like well yeah um, there's a lot of similarities between the two industries and how they're used you just haven't been exposed to that and one of the funny things I always tell people uh, when they finally discover ciders for the first time um, I say to them if you tell me you don't like cider because it's sweet that's like telling me I don't like wine. I've had Manischewitz before, and I don't like that one. So I don't like all wine. It's kind of like saying, I don't like cider, because I've had pick a, pick a big brand name and fill, fill in the blank there. Like, there's other ones out there, and kind of have them explore a little bit. So back to your original question um, about the format size, you know, I've found that a lot of the younger people seem to like those um, cans, because their tastes are different than um what you would find in the 750s we see a lot more of the heritage ciders um, and the drier style ciders in the 750s and so i tend to have an older crowd that kind of goes to those style uh packaging versus the cans
4: hold on a second um quick tyler you just poured a can of your cider what was that
6: that was the brute, I think, that we
3: were
4: just So the King's Highway There's brute,
6: a brute and a rosé out
8: here. And then Dan, you just poured something. I, I just poured some of the uh, Car's Cider House from Western Mass from Haley. Uh, this is their uh, Yarlington Mill single variety.
4: And Paige, since we're talking, Paige, to that's you, why
6: you got to be in here, yeah. in studio.
4: <laughs> Next time, come down. But l- l- <laughs> let's say right now I'm, I'm at your spot and I'm one of those customers that just walked in and I want to try some ciders. T- tell me like three ciders that I, that you would taste cool. me on today.
3: Three ciders that are on my tap that I would taste you on today. Sure. I would absolutely taste you on uh, Penning's Farm Cider. They have something called Iron Mountain, which almost tastes like the peel of an apple. And it's very cool, made right here in the Hudson Valley. Um, I love that. Um, I'd absolutely taste you on King's Highway's whip Appeal, which we always run on tap as well, because it's got an incredibly great guava flavor on the front, and it is my gateway of explaining to people the difference between fruit and um, sweetness. And so we always taste on that. And the third one, that's a little difficult. Um, Probably Orchard Hill's Verde Cider. Um, I run that in my tree tap. We actually have a 15-foot tree with a tap in it. And I almost always run Orchard Hill in there. And I like that because that cider actually hits almost everybody's palate. It is so amazing, from sweet to dry, almost everybody likes that cider.
4: Wow, Tyler, thanks for bringing in Paige. I think I'm going to take a drive up to Fishkill just to she go to like the has like 16 Boutique or wine.
6: 18 tap lines. It's crazy, amazing. Let's
4: just let's just, let's go to to Gieden. So, Geeden, we started talking about you know I've known you a long time. You're one of the pioneers in, in selling cider in New York, but you, you've made a big jump the last few years. So, you, tell us about the orchard and, and why you've why you've committed to. Having an orchard in New York and your your visions for terroir-driven
7: ciders. You know, I, so I have a, uh, my family used to have a dairy farm. I went to section school for veterinary medicine. Um, and unfortunately, our farm went out of business many years ago. So we had land in the Hudson Valley. Um, and about 10 years ago, as a result of going to some great cider events, which include going to Cider Days in Greenfield, Massachusetts, as well as visiting the USDA Orchards in Geneva, New York, um, I really became a lot more knowledgeable and interested in apples in general. And uh, so many, if you look at the, eight, the, the golden age of pomology, the study of fruit trees is the 19th century. And if you look at back at the literature, people were so passionate of the apples they grew. And upon reading upon this literature, there are many apples that weren't available. And I went out of my way to try to find many of these apples. Many of these were endangered apples. Endangered apple is defined as an apple that's being offered by less than three nurseries and apples are really almost impossible to find And so the intent of my test orchard, it's only two acres with uh, dwarf trees. It's to grow many apples that really can't be found um, and from um, The main reason is because I personally want to try them. <laughs> so
8: How many varieties do you have there?
7: We have 150 varieties and actually I think one incredibly important point uh, for my orchard is that I've found that in general, apples that are not indigenous to the States tend not to do as well. Some do, but many do not do as well in the States. And looking, once again, back in literature, there's all this early literature about how growing European apples didn't necessarily, were almost worthless when growing in the States. One of the problems of the cider industry currently is it's such an, um, a... Uh, Attempt uh, uh, to grow, take European cider apples and grow them in the States. But really, what this country needs to do is develop their own indigenous cider apples and propagate them.
5: And Why would you Which, tell people how that happens? That's a good one. The propagation. Well, I was also going <laughs> to
4: say that there's also so many out there. There, there, yeah. there, well, there are all those. Yeah, trees yeah out actually,
7: there. Uh, Tyler has a. A single variety har- uh, Harrison, which is a very famous apple for Newark, and the greatest cider in this country in the early days of our country, was known to grow in New York, New Jersey. I mean, New York, New Jersey had so many famous apples. So that's obviously one amazing apple. but propagation apples through grafting, which is a very simple process, which can be learned pretty easily and I actually right now this next week, I'll be grafting myself some every year I collect some very strange, unusual varieties and grow them because the most exciting thing every year. Is with my orchard is that every year I have at least thirty or forty new varieties, or a certain number of new varieties that are uh, that are harvested for the first time, which keeps it
6: fun and interesting. To- a couple years ago, uh, Gidon invited me over to his house because he actually lives uh, very close to our c- cidery, and I didn't know what to expect. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at all these apples that I've read about in books and everything, just just sitting there. And I said, "Can I use these?" and Right now, we're drinking an Ashmeads kernel. Dish. Which is awesome. And
5: it's amazing. Oh, yeah.
6: <laughs> so at the end of the year, I'll uh, cruise over there after I get coffee in the morning and just grab what's around. Because I, re- I like the really uh, high brick ciders in November, December. This, mm. the Ashmeads, I think is 9%. Yeah, it tastes um, like the Harrison's like 85 and, and then we have a Wixen that we'll try it and embed that's 10.5%. But, um, you know, before I started making cider, I heard well, all did, this.
4: Did you get these apples from Gaiden's?
6: Yeah, yeah, these are from his orchard. So you made this these small yeah batches. I made yeah I made small batches like if there's you know the Wixens they're they're the um, latest apples and they look it's just like these ribbons it looks like cranberries on a on a apple tree they they're they were discovered in California I think 80 yeah. years ago but it's a phenomenal crab apple. And um, so, yeah, if they're all sitting there, okay, I'll make 30 gallons of this, 20 gallons of that, and just see what it is, because it's it's amazing to be able to work with the apples. And before I started making cider, I heard all these people saying, oh, you can't make single varietals, it's going to taste like shit. These have to be blended, these aren't supposed to be on their own. And I've found the complete opposite. And there's a guy actually out in Colorado named um, Dan Haken, who makes all these phenomenal single varietal ciders. Well, the
4: minute you pour... You pour- one of these, uh, Dan here, got so excited.
8: <laughs>
6: yeah, well, I,
8: I love Ashby's Kernel as an apple, and it is so delicious. It has so much texture and weight and phenolics. And it's savory and fruity at the same time. It's it's and, a lot of stuff.
7: And the great thing about the Ashby's Kernel Fort orchard is, is that it's actually a dual purpose apple, so it's as good as an eating apple as a cider apple.
8: So yeah, it, it does taste really good.
7: So we're kind of, we're we kind of talking about two our but we're really
4: talking more about particular apple varieties that are growing in New York. But, Jen, is there anything that, on the state level that's uh, going on talking about terroir and, 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 you know, specific trees that are being recommended to be planted? Or is there a, is there a planning plan for sure. New York State?
5: So, on the one hand, we have a huge apple industry here in New York State. And there are a lot of, I think someone, I think, Edon, you just mentioned dual purpose. There are a lot of dual purpose apples, which means they could be used for cider. They could be used for cooking. They could be used as dessert, fruit, fruit you eat out of hand. So we have a lot of trees. Um, We have Cornell doing a lot of really important research on, primarily on European varieties that have high tannins or really super high acidity. And then there's also a lot of energy going into finding wild apples that, and this goes to what Guidon was saying about how maybe the answer isn't looking to europe as much as developing our own varieties here in new york and so we see a lot of advancement in all three of those categories and again that's one of the reasons that we're so high potential now to talk about terroir it's early days you know do we have microclimates and soil differences of course does an apple grown you know in the on the slope on the side of Lake Cayuga tastes different than in a fertile field in Fishkill, quite possibly. But how we're quantifying those differences is is still a work in progress. Uh, all that said, we do think that there's a way to approach a very... A very high-level concept of terroir by saying, okay, these apples were not just grown in New York, but they're one of a set of varieties that grow well in New York and demonstrate the kind of characteristics that we think cider could and should have. So that's sort of our our baby step towards designating terroir is to have geographical distinction.
8: Dan? well, I think looking back in a lot of the like, 19th century research, it all talks about basically uh, apples of a place. It talks a lot about how uh, certain like uh, Cox and, and uh, Beach talk all about how certain apples grow in certain places and they really excel the best. You talk about like, like Spitzenberg does really well, and both of them talk about Spitzenberg does really well in the Northern Hudson Valley, then specifically in like the Scaheri Valley, how that's really the place for it to grow. And it tastes good A other but it's really best right there. And I think in our next generation, um, and reading a lot about like about Newark, side, we're drinking a Harrison right now from that. Um, King's Highway, yeah. and like Harrison's, a apple variety from Newark, and Newark, New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and a lot of a lot of the literature back there says like basically the reason why Newark cider was so good was because of this apple variety. And apple variety did so well in Newark because it was from it was from Newark, and it did like the two things were kind of were, were linked. It wasn't the cut because of. of Harrison himself But Harrison in New Jersey Did really well You know what's exciting About this show It's making We've talked for so many years About you know Farm breweries
4: Farm cideries Farm tourism You know and th- This is the first show That's made me really Want to go explore New York State I mean You mentioned Schoharie County And the, the shores of, of Lake Cayuga um, Should I go visit all these places? Yes.
5: You should. You should. You should, you know, check out the Lake Ontario fruit growing region. You should check out Western New York, the Finger Lakes, Hudson Valley. We're, um, we've got some folks up in the Berkshires who are, who are growing fruit and and making cider as well. We've got the Catskills and, and, and uh, did I not say the Hudson Valley? The Hudson Valley is the best known. If I overlooked it, it's only because it's at the tip of everyone's tongue.
7: But I, I wanna make a statement that when you even look at New York City, that New York City itself has a crazy and very important history in, in the history of apple growing in our country. The Barry in Dutch gets is is means farm and it, once upon a time the barry was a was was uh, was an orchard that Peter Stuyvesant grew. And the corner 13th and 3rd is a plaque of the very first grafted pear tree ever brought to this country, which stood there for many hundreds of years. The very first horticultural society was started on Greenwich Street, and the most important uh, nursery in the history of this country was started in Queens, and the most important historical literature when it comes to the early days of apple growing in our country and horticulture in general was the William Prince Nursery from Flushing, Queens. So you can't underestimate
6: the importance of New York. I just want to say too, we're drinking this Harrison now. We had the Ashmeads before, and there's just like a little bit of the smokiness to the Harrison. It's a totally different cider. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a few degrees off. They're made the same way. But for me, I think that's such an exciting thing. I think we will get terroir, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, I can see In 10 years, you know, here's how the Gold Rush are on Long Island. Here's how they are, you know, up near the Finger Lakes. But this last year, we had so much rain in the Hudson Valley, the apples taste nothing like they tasted the year before. And that's from just a huge...
4: Now, I think four or five years ago, we did a show with just Kingston Black Varietals. Are there any commercially available ciders that are being marketed... As single varietals? For sure, yeah. Uh,
8: increasingly. Increasingly, more so. I, I think it's a really important part of, um, at, at what sale was very important. People who knew the variety of these apple, it was the cider, it was very helpful in terms of selling the actual product.
5: Yeah, there's a romance to it as well. And, you know, the word in, you know, let's say the 2010 era of cider in the United States was that you should be blending, that cider is meant to be blended. Um, and we've really seen evolution in that, in the mindset around it and the quality of ciders that are being made out of single varieties. And um, and that's a happy coincidence with the fact that drinkers really respond to single varieties, that it, there is this sort of compelling notion that, like, ah, it's not just apples, it's that kind of apple that maybe I can see at the farmer's market, or maybe I've seen growing on a tree, or maybe, you know, has some kind of history to it.
8: Yeah, the, w- the word, like, northern spy has a place in someone's brain, even though they don't know exactly what it is, but it still exists somewhere in their, like, on un- their subconscious. Jordan?
2: Two years ago for Cider Week, Dan, we put together an event with 16 different single varietal Newtown Pippin ciders from around the country and around the world. And that was not even all of the Newtown Pippin ciders we could have gotten.
7: Actually, sorry, if I can make one point. In 1898, a British chemist analyzed the American Newtown Pippin at the Royal Society of Chemistry in England to decide. uh, uh, The question is, why is the Newtown Pippin single varietal better than English ciders? And he analyzed it, and his claim was that there's nothing artificial in the cider. It just simply was a great cider apple. So to say that there isn't a history of single-varietal ciders is really not the case.
6: I think more... 1898. It it wasn't the Harrison, the champagne of America's?
8: Yeah. Harrison's... I think think the blending thing probably comes from more of a European tradition of... of, of In in England, where they basically would grow a lot of different apples and and blend them together. And they, they developed a very... English and the French models are very different than the models that existed in this country a hundred years ago.
5: yeah. What? and primarily cider was was made at at the homestead level here more than uh, as a commercial product. And so you're going to make cider out of what's growing in your backyard or what grows that year. right, right.
8: But but at least like in Newark especially, like the reason why Newark cider was so good terms of like the 19th century was cost of the varieties they put in it and that was the real like hey you're gonna buy this stuff and like you're gonna buy it they used to sell it all up and down the east coast all the south was people were buying york cider and it was cost of the consistency of the varieties it wasn't the same seedling whatever they were having inconsistency that was around most of the country it was actually a real variety that was consistent and as, as a consumer it had a certain amount of expectation. Cachet, Yeah, cachet, but also like you knew what you were drinking Same thing today when We're trying to build out The idea of, of expectations for people to, to consumers In the 19th century New York cider did the same thing For cider for You know it, it, it does make sense Because I'd like to say That
4: even though I've been tasting ciders With you guys for many years I couldn't tell you The difference between A new Tom Pippin Or a Harrison Although I think Ashmead Colonel Is the coolest name yeah. <laughs> So this is really Really promising conversation Guido One quick thing Before we take our next break
7: Okay, well, I was going to say, well, one point on the New, on New Jersey ciders, what, what, kind of following with Dan's point, is actually this really one uh, cool historical fact that the Harrison combined with the Campfield was considered to be particularly wonderful cider. Campfield is another New, New Jersey apple, and it would sell in New York markets for several times the price of other ciders because it was so re- well-respected. And you'll find a lot of that... Uh, those references in literature how great New Jersey cider was
8: great we're gonna awesome. take a, I know it's awesome <laughs> quick what was the Cars we had Dan we had the uh, Cars Yarlington Mill and where's Cars from uh, they're in Western Mass in the, in the Southern Berkshires they're in Haley which is like, near Northampton one of those towns yeah right.
4: <laughs> we're taking another short break we'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio alright
8: mm.
4: All right, I was just practicing my guitar, but this is a pretty cool show guys welcome back beer sessions radio heritage dot org The cider show was going to be a cider controversy show, <laughs> but the controversy is uh you know there's a fact that we're Why actually aren't talking more people
3: drinking
1: it <laughs> we're we're talking
4: about cider, you know, and I, I think it's one of the most interesting beverages out there right now but I, I, Danny, you know, just want to take a step back i I think that big part of the growth of an industry is actually learning from the market like we have Paige on air and she's talking about tasting people that are interested in in wine they they're going to taste cider but you with west to me that's still it's a seminal moment because in 2015 it was the first cider bar in new york city you you had cider makers from all over the country flying in to do tastings because there was nothing else like it before but again you've learned you must have learned so much from the questions people had because anyone interested in cider went to that bar but they must have all come from different you know ex- the expectation levels must have been very different
8: yeah totally We had, I had no idea we were, we were sitting into the, that project but um, it was very much the thing where yeah people have people were super hungry and curious to taste cider but didn't really have the language to actually uh, understand how to communicate what they actually wanted and our staff when we first started didn't really have the language either to really communicate what these products were to the people that they were asking for and like, well, they're all good. Just like, what good do you really want? And uh, for the first like two months we gave away so many samples of things. And just like, for me, it was a clarifying language on, on menus and, 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 and dialing things in, in terms of creating, like creating what people wanted out of the beverages to kind of like, so, that, so we basically went from everyone trying six samples to trying no samples. It was a, in pretty fast time just, just for like, kind of just changing the language on how we presented the products.
4: And then in terms of cider education, I mean, in something like Jordan, I mean, are there – I mean, we can give everyone a little background. I mean, there's other regions in the world where, where ciders has been part of their traditions. Are there any that you look to for inspiration or that current cider makers are, are looking to, or is everyone just focused on making their own product? Oh, totally.
2: And one of my we were recently all over at uh, the USACM CiderCon in Chicago in February, and there my one of my favorite sessions there was about Spanish style cider making, but in the U.S. and how we use that influence and that tradition to make products here that maybe are referential of that or respectful of that but are completely our own thing because we're not growing the same apples. So back to the conversation about what apples we're growing, it's awesome to look at these traditions and consumers who have traveled abroad and gone to a choch in Spain or had cider in Brittany. They have an expectation of what it is, and so we can use that language. But to talk about it in kind of what we're doing here and what our traditions that we're building, I think, is a really cool opportunity. Uh, uh
6: if you want controversy, Jimmy, I will say that I think a lot of people do talk about funkiness in, in cider, and there's, um, I think, one one problem in the market might be that there are some, some funkiness in bottles that isn't, it's intentional. not intentional, it's not good, and you're spending $40 for the bottle, and then people are reporting back, yeah, I don't really like dry cider, and it's like, well, that's not really what what that was or I've even seen it at festivals where people are pouring it and it's just um, so but I think that's might, a
4: challenge for the New York States. You might have that problem anywhere where people don't really know what what
6: the styles are, what they should be. I don't taste I don't taste it in beer and I, I taste a lot of beer. Uh, I, I, I did a, long, a, a while ago but I don't taste it anymore. Yeah but I, I think a
8: lot of that has a, a certain amount of expectations because like when people would, in the, in the Spanish context, like Jen and I went to Spain last year and it was very enlightening in terms of the culture that exists there and how what the things they are doing right things they are doing wrong there um and coming back here and and realizing that oh so much of the Spanish cider that people are selling a Spanish cider Spanish style cider made domestically it's just Bad cider that people yeah. are, are are selling as as as, yep. as good cider as Spanish inspired.
5: Just let it all hang out, cider. <laughs> right,
8: which is like this. Oh, the cider just has. Is, this is the controversy we weren't. This supposed cider talk is, about. is just okay. bac- <laughs> cider is just bacterial. And if you wanted to make a Spanish this this, this is Spanish style cider, if it's like a four year old bottle of Spanish cider, then, then 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 yes, this is a Spanish style cider. But it doesn't have any of the same life and vibrancy that a Spanish cider should have. It just has. Lactic, lactic bacillus, so, so and we have funky a long bits. way
4: to go. But I want to, since I got two cider makers in the room, go, building on what Jordan said. Are there any traditions that that inspired you when you were first making cider? I mean, are you just fermenting, or are you looking to France or or Spain or England for for, for your cider making techniques? Tom? I mean,
6: I like all styles. I like all. You know, well executed cider and I just what I really love about cider is the is the story of it people have been making it for thousands of years the Romans brought it to England it's you know it was you can find these paintings of the old uh, presses with the horse and the, the concrete trough on Long Island from like 1638 I mean this the stuff has been here forever and it's cool to see it coming back
7: uh, I think you know going back to 1996 you know 1898 diver- to 1996 not that, quite that old but like the um you know, when I launched uh, um, Balmer's launched Woodpecker in the States, even though Strongbow is the most popular cider in England, because they thought Americans like a sweeter palate. So the bar was so low in those days in terms of people wanting you know, th- there's only really sweet ciders available. So when I started, the intent was to make a dry cider more in so you're saying my inspiration was a dry European cider, as much as I knew at that point in time, and offer it to the market. So a cider that would be borderline what Beer drinkers would have, which obviously has evolved considerably from that point in time. So, Jen, the, you know,
4: the market as a state cider association—it's it, you got to be pretty sophisticated to to navigate well, your way through this.
5: Yes and no. I I, I think, and Paige touched on uh, younger consumers and differences with younger consumers, and so something that I think is really uh, positive or or hopeful is that we're. Where every year, having more drinkers come online for whom cider isn't a new concept, right? The that's been in the market, so there's not this barrier to get over. It's of, not like,
8: not an, al- an alternative anymore.
5: Right. It's not an alternative. It's not. Um, it's not unknown, and so uh, people are gaining confidence and. Um, by people I mean drinkers, are gaining confidence around, you know, just just the, you know, there's so much intimidation around drinking and being sophisticated enough and talking about it the right way and asking for dry and et cetera. And I think that's decreasing year over year with cider.
4: And let's switch this up because we're running out of time, but the can question. So the thing about cans is
7: it's, uh, let's talk about your shift to cans, Gideon, because for so long you had bottles and draft. You know, there's been a, obviously a huge shift in the craft beer industry towards cans, which obviously the craft beer industry is very, the craft cider industry is very impacted by the craft beer industry. But I do recall a couple of years ago to the CiderCon, the National Cider Conference, and with uh, this uh, Nielsen data making the point that canned cider had gone up several percentages, while uh, bottled cider had gone down. So clearly there's a move uh, for certain people that cans is some more appealing. And we're profile. seeing top
4: tier ciders like Eden and yeah. even Farnham Hill has, yeah. has cans. It's but what I'm trying to say is, is is is, is that going to be the right direction for cider? Because I, I think cans are a great uh, way to deliver it, um, same as beer. But I want someone to to spin that for me.
6: I actually have a question for Paige. Paige, are you still there? Are you still there?
3: Yep, I'm here. All right.
6: So what would happen if? Somebody put a bunch of single varietal ciders and cans in your shop. Are twenty year old kids going to buy that? Because I, I have this feeling that like twenty year olds do not. Twenty one year olds. Twenty one. Twenty one.
3: I was going to Good correct point. you and say we proof everybody here. Twenty one. Um, okay, so that's a loaded question, and I'll tell you why. Um, in terms of single varietals, and going back to what you guys were talking about before, since uh, we put a single varietal cider on tap, I've seen a trend of people asking for single varietal. So we happen to get um, Hudson Valley Farmhouse's Northern Spy on tap and I've run it on tap probably about four months now. And in explaining what that is and what that means to the consumer, they started asking questions about what other single varietal ciders do I have in the store. So I've brought in more single varietal ciders overall, including other Northern Spy and Kingston Black, uh, that kind of stuff. So um, because I'm tasting it on the tap, that's what that's what changes the equation here. If I just had them sitting on a shelf, then, yeah, you definitely have a problem. But if I'm tasting them out on tap and I can explain what a single varietal is, that sparks an interest. And, yes, the younger generation is interested in it.
7: So there's still a market for drafts. We, we just came out with four. Yes. Uh, we have a, a series of four single varietals coming out. Uh, one is the Macintosh, uh, which, which Jen's pouring now and Jordan's drinking now. And hopefully everyone else is going to have it at some point. Um, but um, the it's it, I think that what I've learned over the years is the more you talk about apples, especially if you can talk about depth, the more people latch onto to it. It's just simply that people don't know enough about it to get excited about it. So if you can talk about it in a way that's exciting, people really get into it. Can
5: so. I get a marketing walk for a second? Good work. Um, so what we find... You know, looking at Nielsen data and and just larger cultural trends is that younger drinkers don't identify by beverage type. They are what we call occasional drinkers. So um, they drink by occasion. They want something that they can take with them and, you know, enjoy on a hike or at a picnic or et cetera. You know, Steve Wood always makes the joke about how many times you go on a picnic on a year. But you know what? You know, here in New York City, there's a lot of using parks as your living room. Um, so there are a lot of picnics. And, and about and
6: 50,000 people every day in Prospect Park.
5: Right, exactly. So I have a
2: first picnic planned for Saturday. It's going to be 65 degrees <laughs> in New know.
5: York.
4: But what are you bringing on that picnic?
5: It's definitely going to be cider.
4: And oh, canned yeah. cider, probably. Yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah. So you can take canned cider with you, and and it's lower alcohol, so it, it just it's an easy to drink.
4: This is an amazing show. This is we're gonna do many more cider shows, of course. Um, so happy that you guys came on. Anyone want to wrap it up? Any any of the final statements?
7: I actually want to make one very important point. I think is that some of the most important work done in the country right now is done being done by Cornell University and Greg Peck and his graduate students in terms of. Um, analyzing cider apples and deciding what direction this industry needs to go specifically in terms of profitability for orchardists. And in England, the Long Ashton Research Center had a significant imp- impact on English cider industry, and I think Cornell of the long run will have the same. So,
8: Yeah, Greg's new study is, is really, really amazing and really uh, gives a lot of uh, backbone to a lot of pe- things that people have been saying for many years in the profitability of orchards and kind of understanding the long-term viability of cider as an important part of new york's agriculture
4: great anybody else all right this is a great show. i just want to say um Paige, it is so great having you call in i'm a big advocate of great retail establishments from uh beer bars to wine stores so thank you so much for sharing your expertise
3: that was awesome thank you for having me
4: all right Fishkill, new york right boutique wine
3: Boutique Wine, Spirits, and Cider in Fishkill, New York.
4: All right, and everybody else, just just give us a quick, your name and your whatever, and sign off with us.
5: Jen Smith, Executive Director, New York Cider Association. Cider Week, Hudson Valley, coming at you in June. Rock on.
2: Jordan Berry, Heritage Radio Network producer and cider language researcher.
5: Tyler Graham,
7: King's Highway, Fine Cider. Original Sin. Uh, Get Call getting a little old over there, but I'm okay.
8: So. <laughs> <laughs> the original. Dan Bougie Wild well hospitality. This is great. Thanks
4: for joining us. Big shout out to our producers, Justin Kennedy, engineer Matt Patterson, our new intern Aaliyah Papes, and I'm Jimmy Carbone, the host. Thanks for joining us here on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! woo.